welcome back, folks, to another episode of Trades Talk. I'm here with my co-host, Maggie Wymore. Maggie, how you doing today? I'm doing so good, Justin. Great to hear from you. Great to talk, as always, and extremely excited to bring our guests on the podcast today. Who do we got today? So today we're talking to Austin with Greenwise Landscaping. And Austin bought this company about four or five years ago. He's been growing it ever since. In fact, he's about doubled the company, which he talks about, talks about his growth journey. They're an organic company, Maggie, and, and you know more about this than myself in terms of Austin's growth. You've known him for a few years now. Can you tell us a little bit about his organic program and, and what we're going to talk about today? Yeah. So I met, like I said, Austin a few years back during his Inspire implementation. And the one, the unique thing about Austin is he has a lot of business experience but doesn't have any landscape experience prior to purchasing Greenwise. And he came in, bought the company in 2018, very humble approach, didn't change or disrupt too many things they had going on. They had a really great system built at Greenwise. They're 100% organic, no outside chemicals. They, they set themselves apart as a differentiator in the market because they do not have any sort of chemicals that they operate at their company moving towards an electric footprint too. So all their equipment, yeah. their trucks, they're, they're taking on that an investment of going towards electric. So a lot of good stuff Austin shared with us today, how his marketing strategy and where, where that's going, where it currently is, where it's going, how they use EOS to strategic plan. I know where we've talked about EOS <laughs> multiple times on this podcast, but never a boring conversation there. And really about how, they work with their suppliers, they work with their unique footprint and are scaling just organically. Like, like you said, not, yeah. not to, to make a pun, but they are building this, this brand organically. Yeah. And they're completely differentiating themselves in the market using the organic model. And not only from a client perspective, from an employee perspective, he'll dig into that, talk about how his employee retention is really high and client retention is really high because they are an all organic, pure organic company, because they're fully or going fully electric. They have a couple of Ford Lightnings in the fleet. He talks about why he bought a landscape company versus other industries and specifically why he bought Greenwise. He actually gives us his email at the end, which I'm definitely going to be bugging him for <laughs> and talking to him because out in California, the organic model is, is pretty popular, but very few companies are actually able to implement it. Just a bunch of great content. Super excited to jump into this and share our listeners, share with our listeners Austin's super smart and sharp perspective. Yeah, I, th he, I thought he was a really important guest to get on this podcast and get on quick because a lot of people are needing to pivot to do what he is currently doing. And he shares some things, his, his secret that he shares at the end is a lesson learned. It, you know, they went through some hard times and it's a lesson that he learned literally by making a pivot in his business. So you definitely want to, to hang on and listen to that. Yeah, let's get let's get into it. If you're ready, Justin, to, to dive right into it. Without further ado, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome back to another episode of Trades Talk. Maggie Wymore here with my co-host, Justin White. And today's guest we have on is President and CEO of Greenwise Landscaping out of Chicago. Actually, I should say Greenwise Organic Landscaping out of Chicago. Mr. Austin All. Austin, how are you doing today? 
Doing very well. It's a it's a Friday in September, and our business is starting to ramp up for the fall season. So it's an exciting time, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. We're really excited to have you. Um, I know Justin and you kind of around the same age, both running landscape companies. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background? You know how you got involved in this industry. Who is Austin? What is Greenwise? Kind of give us a little bit of an intro about yourself. Yeah, sounds good. For a long time, I, I grew up in a family-owned business and kind of had a desire to own and operate a company of my own. My family had a, a building products business in Indianapolis where I grew up for about 40 years. So I just kind of grew up around my dad and my grandfather and, and wanted to, to run a company. Spent early part of my career in the financial industry and went to grad school and decided that I wanted to kind of return to the Midwest and, and buy a small business. So I spent a couple of years looking at a whole range of companies, but a lot of landscape and lawn care companies. And it took me about two years to find the business and, and close on the transaction. But in late 2018, was able to do that. And so I've been in the green industry for about five years now. Purchased Greenwise Organic Lawn Care, as you mentioned, which started out as a company that was had a couple pickup trucks. It was putting down poultry-based uh, organic fertilizers. And over time, we've gotten to landscape design build, landscape maintenance, you know, high-end horticultural care mosquito control, snow removal. So we're very much a, a full service la- landscape and lawn care company that services most of the Chicagoland area. Having a blast, got a great team where we've been growing a lot uh, over the last five years and still, I think we're, we're still just getting started. So really happy to be a part of the industry. I, lo- I love the nature of the work, working outdoors, um, improving people's properties and doing it the way that we do it, which we can talk about is, is a bit different than, than a lot of other landscape companies. So that's kind of the story. Yeah. Hey, Austin, Justin here. So give us a little background of how big was the company when you purchased it and where are you guys at today? Uh, when I purchased the company, it was about uh, a little over $5 million of revenue. And about half of that revenue was sort of design, build, installation focused. That, that would include our enhancement business and the rest being recurring services, be it lawn, landscape, or snow removal. Um, I think at that time, we probably had in the range of like 55 employees we had far fewer full-time employees than we do today. So we've we've invested heavily in in full-time staff, be it account managers, designers, you know, operations supervisory staff, accounting and finance. Today we're at probably 90, 95 folks, uh, probably 65 in the field, and the balance being sort of full-time office supervisory. We do just over nine million dollars of annual revenue. And our service mix has has sort of intentionally migrated more towards recurring services, you know, lawn and, and landscape maintenance specifically. So over five years, we've we've about doubled the business um, and we've been able to do that. COVID was a, a great thing for our business. There was a great, and uh, from a financial perspective, great run up in, in maintenance and landscape services, which we're, you know, continuing to see this year. Yeah. Congratulations on that growth. That's tremendous growth over the last few years. And it sounds like you guys are Continuing to double down on the recurring side, why don't you give us a little bit of background and, and some explanation? You mentioned organic lawn care, and, and that's a differentiator for your team. Can you explain a little more on why you guys chose organic and, and what that means to you? You know, getting into this industry, I didn't know a lot about lawn care. I certainly didn't know a lot about organic lawn care or what that meant versus sort of more conventional products. And the genesis of our company was started by uh, a gentleman named Mark Wise, who had kind of kind of an eye towards sustainability. 
uh, and a passion for the environment, um, which it's the reason he started this company. And, and our mission has always been rooted in trying to do things that are good for the planet. We're obviously a business and we, you know, we seek to make money, but we're trying to do things the right way in, in our perspective. Not that there is a right way, but, you know, putting down products that are safe for people and the environment and pets and kids. Um, a lot of our clients, we're, we're predominantly a residentially focused company. So we're servicing mostly HOAs and single family homes and kind of small commercial properties. And a lot of these folks are, you know, pretty concerned with, they, they choose us because of our product selection. So, you know, we use, uh, we have a, a vendor in the, the northern part of the U.S. We buy all poultry-based kind of composted fertilizer, it's Omri, Omri listed, you know, same with um, our, our weed control and mosquito control products, our perimeter pest products. Um, everything we do is sort of safe. You know, we don't have, you know, situations where people have to stay off the lawn for long periods of time. You know, it can mean that the efficacy of our products sometimes is not as effective as what you might find with conventional products. There's been just a ton of research poured into, you know, conventional fertilizers, conventional weed control products that hasn't been invested in, you know, sort of the organic products. And and also, I would say the products that are available to us are a bit more limited. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there aren't like, you know, 10 weed control products out there that we can use for broadleaf weed applications. There's like three, and we think there's one that works pretty effectively. But we think it's, I mean, with any company, you know, you need a strategic differentiation and try to do things differently. The landscape business is, is hugely fragmented. There's a lot of competitors. Chicago's a, a very competitive market. So we've chosen yeah. to sort of do things in this way. And it's helped us kind of distinguish ourselves from our competition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in the Chicagoland area, so I, I'm definitely familiar with all of the, the competitors that, that that are out there. Definitely extremely competitive industry. One thing that you said that stood out to me, though, was you made a pivot to do less design build, less enhancement type work to and go towards more maintenance. Was that a financial margin decision? Was that just based on the skill laborers you have in the field? What drove that decision to drop out your design build enhancement work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I should be more clear about that. It's not that we've we've pulled back on that business. It's just we've made a kind of a strategic decision to grow that business slower than our other services. And I think there's a there's a range of reasons. Like this is not in any specific order, but finding skilled tradesmen and construction crew leaders is extraordinarily difficult, especially in this hiring market. Yeah. And just finding guys who are who are strong masons or plantsmen. It's just it's just really, really hard. Not that finding skilled turf technicians or skilled maintenance foremen is 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 all that much easier, but we just find that the pool of folks available to us for that division, it's just they're just fewer. Secondly, uh, I think the the recurring side of our business, it, it's just easier to scale because things are kind of rec- replicable. Whereas when you have design build um, installations, every project's a little bit different. You know, we're no plant palette is the same. You know, no no property is the same size. No beds are the same size. Um, it's it's just I think it's harder to scale and grow in kind of a systematic way. We use a technology system, Maggie, you know, Aspire, um, and, you know, the the purchase receipt dynamic and sort of how we job cost, it's all very involved from an accounting perspective as well. So it's just, I think it's just a more difficult business to grow and scale. And then I think probably most importantly, we're focused on building, I like to call it a durable revenue base, a, a, a revenue base that's going to, you know, perform for us and that we can count on 
you know, in, in really great times and also in, in leaner times. And we, you know, we have fairly strong retention across our maintenance services. And we just feel like it gives us, you know, some downside protection and some buffer, you know, in the event that, you know, the economy softens or is not as resilient. Um, so those are some of, some of the strategic reasons. I think there's a lot of interest from private equity firms and businesses that are focused on sort of recurring services and, and, and maintenance. And that's a, that's a good thing. I think it makes the business more valuable over time. But really, it's more about just building a business that can hold up in good times and bad. And so that's that's what, what most of the focus has been around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always say the two, there are two industries that are recession proof are the wedding industry and the landscape industry, because grass is always going to keep going, growing and it's always going to keep snowing and people are always going to keep getting married. So that's a really great viewpoint on protecting the business, protecting the revenue. And being from the Midwest myself, people in the Midwest are obsessed with their lawns and how green and perfect they look. So (laughs) even more recession proof here in the Midwest. I love what you're saying about the recurring revenue and the durability of the business. It's something that we talk about a lot in our company and, and why we've diversified into different sectors, specifically recurring income sectors. I, I know scalability is a word you mentioned multiple times. And when we talk to folks at conferences or what have you in, in peer groups, a lot of companies talk to talk about you're saying, but they're not necessarily walking the walk because that design build revenue can sometimes come easily. It's sometimes higher margin. And when you distract your team with that installation projects, sometimes you pull resources away from maintenance and recurring income, sales and operation. You've mentioned a lot of sectors in your company. Can you tell us a little bit about how you go about adding a new sector in your business, uh, specifically a recurring income sector for for those companies out there who are maybe more design build, but are wanting to go into lawn maintenance or go into Mm -hmm. spray maintenance? You talk to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I might not be the best person to mention that only because over the last five years, we actually haven't introduced many new services or new service lines. Like we've kind of added, you know, within turf, for instance, you know, we've added certain services, which are, you know, like soil builders or compost installation or, you know, slice seeding. We, we're doing additional things within those departments, but it's not that that we've got into like pool installations or irrigation. Like we haven't made us kind of a, a pivot towards doing like an entirely different discipline. And the reason for us is like, we, we still have so much work to do and it's a never ending journey on sort of improving quality of service um, and kind of client experience. So our feeling has been that like, if we're, if we're trying to do too many things, it can really dilute what we already do. And I think that there's always these shiny objects out there that can be distractions for companies that might look attractive. And, you know, you see other companies doing them. You're like, man, I could capture a ton of revenue if I was only doing irrigation maintenance for your clients. But then you look at, all the inventory involved and the skill set um, and the seasonality of it. So we've made a pretty kind of determined focus on just being keep keeping things as simple as possible and try not to overextend ourselves. I, I think your point on the design build revenue is is a good one. That business, you know, for us is is extremely profitable. You know, and for most people, um, the gross margin profile of a of a landscape installation, you know, maintenance is no comparison. And I think that that's why many companies get themselves in a position where they're kind of overweight on design, build, or installation work versus maintenance. Like most of the companies that 
I evaluated during my search process had found themselves in that position. They were 60, 70, 80% design build. And when it's working, it really works. You know, those companies can be, you know, have sort of best in class margin profiles, but when it doesn't work, it can be pretty tough. I I think you have to make a concerted um, focus on saying like, hey, we're going to grow at a steady pace. We're not going to take on everything that comes our way. We're going to be selective. We want to work with the right type of client on the right type of installation. You know, we do all of our own design work and we we install everything that we design. So we're not, you know, working with at this point, a lot of, you know, landscape architecture firms, or we're not bidding out on, on designs that have already been delivered to the client. So we're just trying to kind of narrow the focus and do what we do well. And I think that that's helped us grow it at a more modest pace versus trying to be all things to all people. Yeah, man, I like that a lot. I think that's some great advice there. Maggie, what do you think? Yeah, I, it's something that I actually hear from you quite often, Justin, is that you guys have actually turned down work. You, you actually won work being higher priced because you know what the quality that you're going to deliver is. And it falls directly in line with the, the business model that we should be preaching, right? If you want to grow, be selective and be strategic and then also be the highest priced if you're going to deliver the best best result. Yeah, when when companies are kind of more nascent and just get getting going, you know, you don't really have the choice to be selective. Um, but I think when you know Justin size your company, you know, the size of our company, we're not a huge company, but you know we have the opportunity now to kind of decide who we want to be and and how we want to market ourselves and how we communicate that. And you know you can be a little more selective about the types of clients you take on. So I think that's a luxury. Most most companies in our industry just are are much smaller. You know, the, the average size company, Maggie, you probably have the data on this is probably less than a million dollars of revenue. So I think it's harder to be selective, but once you reach kind of a certain scale, I think you, you do have that luxury and it's, it's important for the, the leadership team of that company to, to act on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk to me about competitors, Austin. So we talked about, you know, there's a lot of landscapers in the Chicagoland area, but how many are doing what you're doing from the organic standpoint? this is kind of a multi-pronged answer. I'd, I'd say there's on the lawn care side. So this is the application business, fertilization, weed control. There's a lot of conventional companies that have an organic offering and, you know, organic is a, it's a buzzword and, you know, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. So what we often see are there are companies that have an organic based or a blended or a transition program where maybe, Folks are using, you know, Omri-based or organic fertilizers and more of a conventional weed control product. You know, there's like in an organic toolkit, for example, there's not there's not a pre-emergent that we have access to other than we we use a corn gluten meal-based fertilizer for our first fer- fertilization. So we often see companies sort of taking that blended approach, which I think is a way to talk about being organic, but also provide more of a, of a conventional experience. And we've made the decision to be sort of more pure play and, and more purist about it. And that didn't start with me. That's kind of the mindset that I inherited. We've, we've all adopted here. So we will not use sort of conventional or synthetic weed control products, for example. So that's that's sort of one group. Um, there are, you know, I'd say there are a more limited group of companies like us who will do sort of that more purist approach. There are some around Chicago. Most of them are sort of local mom and pops. There's a couple that are sort of more regional in nature. And then there's some franchises as well that kind of span across the U.S. Um, and then 
there are companies that are traditional landscape companies that also have an organic offering, but we'll, m- most of those companies like full service companies will do conventional and organic. So I think one thing that differentiates us is a couple of things. One, we're sort of have that purist mindset that we want to use safe products all the time. And two, that we're a full service landscape company. So we want to be able to provide, you know, a variety of services for our clients. Um, you know, we want to be sort of that one-stop shop to the extent we can, you know, we don't do irrigation maintenance. Uh, we don't do irrigation installation. We don't do carpentry. Um, there are certain things, you know, pest control that we can't provide, but as far as the landscape concerned, we can, we can do most of what a client needs and we can do it in that organic way. So I think that's what makes our company different. People can come to us for most of what they need and then they, they know we're going to do it in that, in that sort of pure play mindset. And Austin, has that helped you? I know we're talking customer base here, but has that helped you with employee retention and recruitment when you're talking about not using chemicals and you're, you're a fully organic company that's just more purist mindset? Has that helped you on the employee side? Yes, as much as it has on the customer side. I, would, I wouldn't say that all of our 90 or 95 team members are sort of diehard, you know, organic <laughs> folks. Um, and I wouldn't even put myself in that category, but we have people that the the mission, and, and I'm, I'm part of this uh, category, the mission of what we do and how we do it is important. And, you know, we believe in it. We do, in, as far as our, you know, recruiting efforts go, a lot of the folks that are attracted to our company are coming here because of the way that we do things. That could be, you know, um, a maintenance crew member who, you know, would prefer to use electric maintenance equipment um, and and hand tools and blowers because they don't have to wear, you know, earmuffs or earplugs. I mean, they they should uh, from a safety perspective, (laughs) but, you know, it's not, it's not, um, you know, nearly as, as loud and damaging for, you know, for them. Um, It might be the, the turf technician who doesn't have to, you know, spray Roundup and is spraying, um, Final sand, which is a, a you know a fatty acid based product, it's totally safe. They don't have to worry about you know getting that stuff on their skin and and having it be damaging or harmful. And it also might be somebody who works with us on the sales side or the design side who has you know an interest in in native plantings or permeable pavers or electric maintenance. That's what they want to sell because they believe in it and feel like there's a lot of momentum behind it. So, like I said, it's not everybody comes to us just for that reason. Like we're trying to find. And, and identify and recruit and retain, you know, the best employees that we can. Um, but I would say that by and large, most of the people that work here really believe in what we do and have, have sought us out for that reason. Yeah, I think that's huge today in today's world is having a purpose-driven company and one that your employees can actually get behind. I'd love to talk about electric equipment, but before we pivot to that, as a contractor who is not fully organic over here, in my mind, I'm thinking it would be awesome to work towards that. You know, as a company who is doing conventional maintenance, potentially using glyphosate and other chemicals, what would be your recommendation to them on maybe why they should move organic? And what would be what would be a step towards moving organic? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to do it as as a wholesale change. Um, it could be that like your clients, not yours, but a company's clients may not may not want that, you know, it may just not be important to them when you're talking about, you know, office parks and, you know, big box retail and, you know, major, major commercial properties, a property manager may say, Hey, the the things that are important to me are um, responsiveness and quality of service and, and probably price. And 
there's a limitation with organics because they tend to be more expensive. You tend to have to put down more of the product, especially when it comes to the fertilizer. So to get into the the weeds a little bit, like, you know, we use an, uh, like a 902 or a 624, um, you know, fertilizer, those things, they just, they just pack less punch because they, you know, they're, they're animal byproducts or they come from the earth. So we have to put them down heavier, which means, you know, the service ends up being more expensive to the clients. So I guess like getting back to your question, like how might you explore that? I would say, talk to a company like ours, you know, we're, we're happy to, you know, we, we would like pe- more people to be interested in, in organics. We're happy to share information. Like we don't hold any of this super close to the best. Um, we don't have a lot of like competitive intelligence that we're not willing to share. A lot of companies that are, that are seeking to add a service offering in organics do reach out to us. So we're happy to be a resource. I would say another uh, area might be just talk, talk to your local distributor. You know, a lot of companies that distribute, even, even a company like site one, you know, a big national distributor who sells conventional fertilizers also sells organic and natural lawn care products. So talk to them, talk to your distributors and, and your reps about what products are available, what the cost might be, run the math, see if, see if you can make the cost work for you. And maybe even, you know, survey your clients and try to understand, like, if we were to introduce an offering like this, is this something that might be of interest to you? And then what's your willingness to pay? So I think in the residential context, it, it makes more sense because you're dealing with people who, you know, spend time on their properties. Like I said, they may have pets or kids. Um, I think it, it's just, there's more demand and momentum around that. But as you get into, you know, lead certified buildings and, you know, as you get into areas like where, where you are in California, Justin, like there's a lot of, you know, regulatory push around these things in places, in certain places, mostly on the coast. So those are just some ideas. Uh, that's not, that's not all somebody could do, but I might start there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's great advice. I think it's, I think it's worth it when you look at the customer retention because at the end of the day, landscaping has been, especially landscape maintenance has been commoditized where everything is just, everyone can mow the lawn the same way. So if there's a differentiation factor that makes it harder for a new company to come in and quote unquote steal your clients, if there's some type of firewall you can install, which is Hey, we do this organic thing. And if the new guys aren't able to offer that, the clients probably aren't going to jump for it if they are an HOA or a residential homeowner. Seems like that's probably, from what I'm hearing, has helped your client retention because it's really hard for a competitor to come in and offer the same thing that you offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that it, it, when you have, it's a good point. And when when you have sort of multiple ways to treat a property, we're just talking about the lawn right now, you know, you have conventional products and you have organic products. I think what we've found anecdotally is that it's really easy to, when you have a problem, lean on the conventional products. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a crabgrass problem. You know, it's hard to solve organically. You know, we don't have a pre-emergent we're putting down other than corn gluten meal, like I mentioned. So you've got a crabgrass problem. What what do you do about it? You know, we have a way of doing things and that's, you know, we'll send guys out there. We'll dig it out. We'll seed it. You know, we'll do basically a lawn repair what we found is some clients will give us the feedback. Well, I thought this company was using organics, but it turned out when I had this problem, you know, they reach back into the conventional toolkit. So I think because we have that purist mindset, it sort of, I mean, it sort of handcuffs us a little bit, but also it it doesn't tempt us to, to, to sort of use something that's inconsistent with, with what our client promises. You know, a good friend of mine runs an organic uh, fertilizer company out here in California and focused on ag and organic ag out here, which is a pretty big, operation, big economy. And his biggest challenge is people who 
kind of package organic organic offerings, but like you said, still have some conventional tools in their toolbox. How do you guys deal with those types of competitors when I'm sure it's got to be frustrating? They're undercutting price-wise or kind of promising things and not delivering on those. How do you how do you handle those types of situations? Well, the short answer is we don't um, just because it's totally <laughs> outside of our control. You know, uh, we've got to focus on the factors that, that that we have influence over and what other people are doing or, you know, messages that they're sending in their marketing. It's just not something that has really anything to do with us. So, you know, what we do try to do is go out there and tell our story and, you know, educate clients and in organics, there's just, there's a ton of education that takes place. You step on a, a client's property for a consultation that has been using, you know, a, a national lawn care company that has been putting down, you know, conventional products for 10, 15 years. They don't know anything about organic except they may have found you online or their neighbor may have referred you. And, as much as they are to, you know, there to purchase your service, they're there to learn about what your service is, you know, to start. So we just try to go out there and, and tell people about what we do. I mean, can it be frustrating? Well, of course, you know, it's kind of a, there's, there's in some sense, an unlevel playing field in, in, you mentioned ag and in, in food and, you know, products that, you know, have to go through the USDA and, and FDA and the like, like, you know, you can't say organic unless it's truly organic. There's really rules around this type of thing. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I don't pretend to be an expert, but in lawn and landscape, you know, it's like, it's kind of the wild west, you know, you can say organic, you can say natural, you can say sustainable. <laughs> and, you know, um, that means a lot of different things. One thing we encourage people to do is, you know, look at, look at the label of your fertilizer or the weed control product, you know, what does it say on it? What are the ingredients? And sometimes we'll say, Hey, send us, send us the label and we can tell you what's in there. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not so good. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Fertilizer labels are something that most people aren't accustomed to looking at, so it can they can be hard to interpret, um, and we're happy to do that for our clients. So we we see that happening from time to time. Your your push on marketing and messaging and all of that has to be a very strategic plan as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it's probably it's probably less sophisticated than you think. I mean, we, you know, I think it's it's interesting. You hit these inflection points and you know, in your growth cycle where you decide, hey, we need, you know, a full-time HR person or we need a full-time CFO or we need a full-time mm-hmm. marketing person. And I think that's sort of an inflection point that we're actually at right now, um, you know, for us to keep up with our messaging and branding and, you know, do the things we want to do around, you know, be it paid search or SEO, you know, Instagram and Reels and TikTok and all this stuff. Um, it's a it's a hugely time consuming uh, set of responsibilities. Um, we've we've outsourced some of that, so we've worked with a number of you know marketing agencies that have helped us with paid ads and SEO. We finally found one that we really like, um, who's been hugely helpful to us that focuses on the lawn and landscape industry. So I think you know, that's been one thing. It's been a journey for us is just finding the right partner who understands our business and can help us grow it. But as far as you know. Um, you know, just sort of pulling all of those things together in-house is something we are still trying to figure out how to do. Um, so we're, we've been able to grow, I think, and have a lot of momentum because of who we are, because of the message we send, because, you know, we've been in a strong sort of bull market for quite some time. Um, but we're sort of rethinking how we do that. Do we, do we lean on other PR and marketing partners externally? Is it more cost-effective for us to do that? Or do we just hire somebody who's really high powered 
to sort of take a lot of that off of what's my play right now. That's a lot of what I spend my time on. And this candidly, I'm, I'm more of, you know, a business person, have some financial knowledge, you know, more focused on the strategy of the business. Um, gosh, I couldn't tell you what makes a good reel on Instagram. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're trying to figure out how we do that for 2024. It sounds so, so similar to conversations I've had with Justin. I, I mean, Justin, you can speak about it, but I think you guys are around the same point in your company where you're trying to figure that out. Yeah. Marketing is huge. And it's something that I think when you're a good company offering quality service and you have a differentiating factor like Austin has, you know, Austin, you guys are probably growing organically, you know, sorry, the pun, but you guys are growing organically without having to do a ton of marketing because your name speaks for itself. But as we, you know, as like our company is, is in that right in between 10 and 20 million, it gets a little sticky around that midpoint, like 16, 15, 16 million, where, you do have to really turn on the marketing engines, got to get your sales team and marketing aligned and start to talk to customers who aren't hearing about you from the day-to-day word on the street. Have you mm-hmm. guys felt that yet? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, when you're when you're a three or four million dollar company, you know, you don't need nearly as much lead volume to grow. You just, I mean, you, and, and now that we're sort of double the size that we were, you know, five years ago, like we need twice the number, you know, maybe not twice because we've had price increases and everything else, but, you know, you just need a considerable amount more lead volume. And the question is like, how do you go find that? There's going to be a certain subset of people that find you by seeing your vehicles on the road. And that certainly is something that we benefit from. You know, we've got north of 40 trucks, 43 trucks in the fleet. Uh, you know, people are saying, you know, we see everywhere and that's a good thing. They call us because of that. And, and referrals are probably the best source of you know, lead gen that we have, you know, closing rates on referrals are just extraordinarily high, but how do you find those people who, who may not know to look for you? And that's a nut, Justin, I haven't, I haven't really cracked yet, um, but we're, you know, I, and, and when you get to your, when you get to your size, you want to continue to grow at that same, you know, annual growth rate. I just think it becomes harder and harder and you need to be more focused on it. And you got to have, you know, really best in class marketing resources or people who can tell you how to do it. It's, it's a hard challenge. It, it is. We had a great guest on recently, Kelly, who actually owns a marketing company. And, and I'd, I'd recommend anyone listening and Austin yourself to give that a listen. She talks exactly about what we're talking about and how her operation can actually take that work off the owner's plate. I, I want to I ask you a question on this. Just with your background, I think you have a unique perspective. I feel CEOs and owners have a tough time deciding day to day what their job is and what they are responsible for in the company. Of course, strategy, look ahead. But when you show up to the office at 7 a.m. or what have you, you know, what is the main responsibility of the CEO slash owner slash president in your opinion, Austin? Yeah. Um, you know, this is just an opinion. So just take it for what it's worth. But I've seen, you know, a whole whole lot of different types of business owners or CEOs. You have the the CEO or the business owner that focuses on sales, you know, that the, the gentleman that I bought the company from, that's, that was his focus. He was in the field selling a lot of maintenance and design and enhancement work. Um, you know, I've tried that before. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> so I've, you know, I, I, I don't spend a lot of my time on sales or sort of customer facing issues. Um, it's just not where my background, my strengths are really my interests lie. So we have, you know, talented people internally who do a lot of that. Then you have like the ops focused CEO who is getting to the shop at 
you know, 630 or, you know, maybe even earlier to sort of get things ready for the day. And they're focused on fleet and labor and execution and quality training safety. Um, I will say that's also not me. Um, I've not, I don't have a background in, you know, ops management. I mean, I, I can sort of fake it and, and do, do an okay job, which I've done for some time, but, you know, we have people internally who are, who are, who are great and that's their skill set. That's their interest. That's their passion. And then you have CEOs that, you know, are more strategic focused, as you mentioned, sort of setting the vision, the roadmap for the company, you know, guiding the company, establishing the core values, you know, hiring, recruiting, sort of looking to the future. And I think aspirationally, like, you know, that's the the type of business owner that that I would like to be. Um, I can't say that I'm spending all of my time, you know, um, you know, from on high sort of planning for what 2025 and 2026 looks like. I'd like to think we have, you know, a decently, um, you know, well-designed sort of strategic roadmap, but it could be better. Um, even at our size, you know, a business owner often gets pulled into the day-to-day. You know, it could be, you know, payroll issues. It could be a software issue. It could be an employee issue. It could be a customer issue. I mean, I get pulled into a lot of stuff that is unplanned. Um, I've been able to delegate a lot of that to some of the great people, some of the great leaders that we have within our company. And I'd say nowadays, like I'm more, I'm much more focused on sort of planning, you know, six, 12 months out, um, you know, the financial performance of the business, reviewing P&L, reviewing balance sheets, you know, kind of trying to understand where we're at and what levers we can pull to improve the profitability of the company. And I love hiring and recruiting. I love spending time talking to people about what we do and how we do it and trying to convince great people to join our business. So the more I can spend on those three categories, I think probably the better for me, the better for comp- the company. I'll sort of get out of, out of everybody's way and, you know, let them sort of, you know, manage and run the day to day, which is which is what they're good at. And I think another flavor is, you know, you've also got CEOs who spend a lot of time looking at acquisitions or, you know, how do you grow inorganically? And that's something I'd like to spend more of my time on as well, having a background in in, in the private equity business and, and purchasing companies. So that's probably, you know, 10 to 15% of my time right now. I'd like to, to be a bit more. So there's no easy answer on that. I think that as you scale and grow, um, more options are available to you as an owner and a CEO on how you want to spend your time so long as you have great people in your company who can take things off your plate. But I'd stay, say even still, like being south of $10 million of revenue, you know, a business owner's got to be involved in, in a whole lot of things. Uh, and that can be sort of, you know, five feet from the ground and 20,000 feet from the ground. Yeah, that's a great, very detailed answer. I my big takeaway is is hire great people and and stay out of the way and keep looking ahead to make sure that the six month, one year, and five year plans are laid out and you guys are headed in the direction you want to head into. You know, one thing that I want to ask was you mentioned you got into the green industry because you purchased this company in in 2018 and you were looking at other industries. You were obviously looking at other companies. What was the determining factor? This is a two part question. So first part. Why did you decide to purchase a company rather than maybe just starting from the ground up? And secondly, what interested you the most about the green industry? And, and has that has that proved to be an accurate guess and, and bet on our industry here? Sure. I, I think you can be pretty capital efficient and starting a company uh, requires you know, less investment than it might to buy one. But it just takes a whole heck of a lot longer to grow. And I think it also takes the right type of person who can sort of, you know, start from nothing and build it to something that's substantial. That's just not me. That's not something that I felt like I was going to be 
effective doing. It's not something I have experience doing, but what I did know how to do was, you know, uh, structure uh, an acquisition, you know, what it, be it the, the due diligence of, you know, analyzing a company, you know, the legal documentation. Um, I think when you're buying a company, particularly from a founder or an owner, so much of it is about the chemistry that you have with that person, you know, or they, they're trusting you to be a good steward of what they built. So I felt like I was, you know, reasonably effective at developing good relationships with, with business owners, having grown up in a small family business myself. Um, and it was kind of a way to, you know, skip the steps from, from zero to 5 million, you know, going from zero accounts to, you know, 1200 accounts would have taken a, a considerable amount of time. And, um, this, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm an impatient person, but I wouldn't have been willing to, to sort of go down that path and have it take a long time. So that was part of it. Um, and, you know, as far as my experience in this industry um, and, and sort of why Greenwise, I just sort of felt like the, I looked at a lot of landscape companies, as I mentioned, and this one was very unique and differentiated, albeit small. Um, and I'd say within our market, there's sort of, you know, there is a, a more limited demand than you might see in the broader landscape industry. You know, we're a small sliver of, of overall lawn care and landscaping, but I think it had a lot of good tailwinds behind it, you know, around health and wellness and regulatory and consumer preferences changing. So that was all attractive to me. And, you know, I think the growth of the company at that time and, and still has reflected a lot of that. Like I mentioned at the start, I, I love the nature of what we do. I, I love being outdoors. I love you know, being able to improve people's properties. I mean, what we do in a lot of cases it can be pretty dramatic and we give people this, this sort of space and, you know, the environment to, to create memories and spend time with their families and loved ones. I mean, that sounds kind of squishy and soft, but I mean, it's really true. Like we're, we're in a lot of cases transforming people's properties and backyards. So, um, and I like the nature of our workforce too. You know, I grew up in a business that had a lot of sort of blue collar folks and, you know, I happen to major in Spanish in college. So I'm able to communicate with a lot of our guys and it's just remarkable how hardworking they are, they are and sort of what they do every day. You know, it's, it's, it can be kind of backbreaking work and it's really, I just admire them every day for what they do. So I really enjoy the space. And, and I think that there's just a ton of opportunity, whether it's, you know, differentiating yourself on customer service or organics or buying other companies, there's just, there's just a lot of ways to win in this industry it gives you a lot of optionality. So that's also exciting to me. One of the things you said is that you enjoyed buying a company that was already established. You did, you know, starting from nothing wasn't the route you wanted to go. Also with that though, you can come in and potentially be a disruptor. I know that there was a lot of management people in place when you bought the company, you know, coming in with no industry experience. The fact that you spoke Spanish is incredible because that would instantly build credibility with the team. But how did you manage through not being a disruptor of what was already there? How did you choose who stayed on the management team, who didn't, uh, and mm -hmm. make navigate that whole thing? Carefully, I'd say, is, is the, the watchword. Um, you know, it, this business that we acquired, uh, it, it was working. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a turnaround situation. It wasn't a distressed company. It was an attractive business that was profitable and growing and making money. And, you know, we didn't want to come in and sort of, you know, get it off the rails. I, I wanted to come in and try to add to and supplement what they were already doing. And I think that the best way to do that is just to try to, at the outset, build trust. Um, that I think that's the biggest thing that gets called into question with, you know, the acquisition of any company. It's like, is my job safe? You know, 
are, are, are there big changes that are going to impact what I do every day? Um, so we just tried not to, to rock the boat too much early on. I, I will say that we decided to put in Aspire much earlier than I expected. It was basically the first big change that we uh, we made a decision on, acquired the company in November and the following February, like three months later, we decided to, to go ahead with the implementation. And I think that was a pretty dramatic change, but it wasn't something where people were like, man, like I'm not really sure what my place is here. So I think just tread lightly, try to try to learn from and understand what people do, what, you know, where, where their pain points are, where you can help them. And for the first three to six months, like I, I got to tell you, like I, I wasn't, I didn't really feel like I was even running the company in a sense. I was learning from people and trying to understand the environment, learning the industry. I was new to it. Um, so that would be some some advice as a, the way I approached it, at least. I would say like as, as far as the team goes, you know, they're, I think the culture of a company, and this isn't always the case, particularly in larger companies, but I think the culture of the company often reflects, you know, who owns it in some ways, you know, especially if you started the company. Um, so what the what the owner or the founder wants the company to be is reflected in sort of you know how the business is operated and you know the people in the business. I I think to change the culture in some cases sometimes you have to change the people, and that's not to be a negative thing. Some people self selected out of our business. You know they're like, you know we bought the company and they're just like this is this is just not for me, and that that's okay. You know they moved on and then yeah you know there were other some, some other situations where we had to make that decision on our side. But in the end, like, you know, I think those are good things. You know, you're trying to, you're, you've got to get the right team in place. You've got to get the right people who believe in your vision, who you're aligned with. You're all rowing in the same direction. It's got to be, it's got to be your team as yeah. a business owner. And, and I'm fortunate that I've got, a, you know, a number of people, um, both on leadership all the way down to sort of our field staff that have been with us, you know, seven, our company's only 15 years old. So been with us seven, eight, you know, 15 years, um, been with us since the beginning. So we have some very loyal people that have, have remained quite a number of them, but at least on the, like the office sales admin side, like, you know, I would say almost everybody is new over the last five years. Um, it has given us an opportunity to sort of hit reset and determine, you know, what we want the company to be and how we do things and get people that are bought into that. So I don't think that's uncommon. It was probably a little bit more dramatic here than you typically see, but that was sort of by design. Yeah. Absolutely. I know I met you pretty soon after you purchased the company when you were implementing Aspire. And I, I have to agree from an outsider's perspective, the one thing that I noticed with you is that you didn't try to speak for people or make decisions for people. You leaned heavily on the people who had the expertise at the company, the experience at the company to make those decisions. And you kind of just stood back and drove the conversation by bringing in the right people at the right time. So a lot of credit to you because some people who come in and purchase companies do that very, very wrong and things go south and, and you, you succeeded tremendously <laughs> with that, that transition. Well, th thanks for saying that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Austin, what do you guys use for your strategic planning and strategic tools? Is it kind of a homegrown system or do you guys operate on a methodology of some sort? Very much not homegrown, although we've made some of our own tweaks to it. We use what's called EOS. Are, are you familiar with that system? Oh, yeah, man. I think it's come up on every podcast episode. Maggie, <laughs> Aspire, and KD both operate on EOS. And uh, okay. for those out there, I think most people know EOS at this point. 
So for you, could you give us how have you adapted EOS into your company to work for you guys? Sure. Yeah, I don't need to go through what it is, and that's perfect because uh, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't give a very good infomercial <laughs> about it. But we, uh, I'd say, you know, candidly, we we had some false starts with it. You know, we, I think mm-hmm. it was probably three, three and a half years ago. We tried to, so we self-implemented. That's one thing to consider. We didn't hire yep. uh, sort of a, an implementer, um, mostly from a from a cost perspective. I just didn't feel like we it was it was right, sort of the right time. And then secondly. What was most attractive to me about EOS was sort of like the long-term planning, the goal setting, the issue, um, you know, how you deal with issues, and then like your your core values and how you hire and retain people around those core values. And you know, I'm no expert in this, but I I was sort of maybe had a little bit <laughs> of enough confidence to know like to think that I could I could sort of lead that charge. And I think that's why we had some false starts. You know, we had a management team at that time that was seven people, I believe and not necessarily all the right people. And I think what EOS often teaches you is like your management team, once you undergo EOS will not be the same once you've implemented nope. it. That was yep. very much our experience. So now we've, we've got five people and, and different people on that team. Um, and so it's just been a journey for us. And we've also started, I'd say we've probably gone a little more slowly than other companies have. You know, it's not that we put it in at the leadership team level and then the admin and the sales and the finance. You know, we, we basically kept it at the leadership team level for about two years. And we would do our quarterly offsites and our L10 meeting and, you know, our long range planning. And then more recently, just this year, we've brought our operations team into the fold. So we're doing, you know, we're not even two rocks yet. We're not even two quarterly planning. We're trying to get the L10 cadence down and how we solve issues together. So I think we've taken a more measured approach, but for us, like, it's been transformational. Um, and you could, you should ask my management team, my leadership team, because they, they, I think they will agree maybe in different ways, but it's really helped us. Like right now we're in our, our budgeting process for 2024. And for the first three years of the company, we didn't, even, we didn't even have a budget. So we do a better job of like creating space and time for, for planning and like sort of getting outside of the, the day-to-day of the business and it's been awesome. I know there's like a bunch of varieties of EOS, like there's other ones, but for us EOS, like I think what I what I really like about it is it's easy to understand, it's easy to grasp. When you explain it to people, it's like I don't think it's that hard to get buy-in on it. So it's been great. Yeah, one thing that that Justin said when he was talking about EOS, um, talking to a different guest, was you can get done in three months what you would normally accomplish in a year, and therefore you can get more done quickly. And that just speaks volumes. I know we we use it as a sales leadership team at Aspire. All of the Aspire leadership teams use it. And it's extremely effective, regardless of what type of business you're in. Hammering out the issues, focusing on those big rocks. Absolutely recommend it for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It just Agreed. gives you a playbook to run by. And I think, Austin, you alluded to some some good takeaways there is Supplement implementation can save you money, but hiring or, you know, acquiring or engaging with a implementer can really shorten the curve. I know it did for us. We actually had a coach who we were on Rockefeller habits and the scale up methodology. So with that coach, we transitioned to EOS together and it was a journey, but it it made the transition a lot easier having someone on the outside holding you accountable, especially at those planning session meetings. Uh, but your your other point too is when you implement a system like this in your company and you're wanting to go from five to ten million or from one to three million, y- be ready to have a 
new team or a different team in at the end of that growth period. I, I think that's a really good point that you pointed out. Not everyone's going to be on board. And if you're really going to have the best of the company in mind, you're going to have to access some people from the company. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest part is like you're, for, for us, like uh, you're, you're going through this process where you're trying to get this system in place. And all the while you're sort of determining that somebody in that room just doesn't fit. And like, how do you, how do you manage that situation? It might not be that they, they don't fit within the company. You know, they may, they may very well meet all the, your core values and just be like a great contributor, but maybe they're in the wrong, you know, they call it like right person, right seat. Maybe they're in the wrong seat. Maybe they don't belong in the leadership team. So it's like the old adage, like, you know, your success will be dependent on like the number of hard conversations you're willing to have or something like that. There's a lot of hard conversations that happen in that implementation journey. And I would just advise like any business owner or CEO, just, just be ready to like not be scared and be brave and courageous and having those conversations. Because if you don't, then, then the system doesn't work. Yeah, no, 100%. And, and that's, we talked about CEO responsibilities. You know, there's certain conversations that only the CEO can have. And that is one of them is when a leadership team member is no longer engaging. It's, we call it the black hole of energy in the room. And it's obvious to everybody else. And you have to have a conversation. Sometimes they turn around. Sometimes, like you said, they go to a different place in the company and they're very successful. And other times they end up for the betterment of the employee and the company transitioning to a, a different career. Wow. I mean, I'm I'm loving the conversation, Austin. We could probably talk for hours on this and, and dive into, I know you guys are big on electric equipment, so we'll have to have you back to talk about that. But, you know, as we wrap this show up, I'd love to get a trading secret from you. It's It's a little thing we do at the end of every podcast. It's something you can't find in a book, something that is not going to be in the normal literature of business school. And it really comes from experience, the hard work in the trenches experience that that you have. So if you could, you know, share a secret with our guests that that they can take away. Well, I racked my brain on this because you told me it was coming, which I appreciate not being caught off guard by it. And the the one I'd say the one this is this is pretty specific, but it does revolve around electric equipment. So we're kind of getting into that now. And I think it has been like a huge level up for us. That was a big surprise. So we've We've invested considerably in our electric fleet, hand tools and mowers over the last uh, four years or so. And one of the biggest challenges we've had, and we talked about this at the the, the uh, tech conference in, in Vegas last month, just, just the number of batteries you need to, to sort of have a hand tool run all day or, you know, the charging infrastructure is, is a big limitation, I think, on the adoption of electric equipment. You know, you got to buy five batteries and they're $300 a pop. And how do you charge them all? They don't get you through the day. So we bought, um, we bought two Ford Lightnings this year as kind of an experiment to figure out like, how do we have like a fully electric maintenance crew, uh, two of them, in fact. And what we found is that these Lightnings, these, these electric vehicles are fully equipped with outlets inside of them. So we have on-site charging capability while we're at clients' properties and it's it's amazing because it it eliminates our our need to buy, you know, just so many batteries. So it's it saves us on a capex uh, from a capex perspective, and then it also just allows the guys to not to to have ready equipment throughout the day. They don't have to call their supervisor and say, "I need another battery." You know, things are just ready for them to go. Um, and I think it's something that as we continue to plan for and invest in, you know, EVs that 
will continue to leverage. And honestly, when we bought these trucks, we had no idea they even had chargers in them or they had, they had outlets in them. <laughs> wow. so it was, it was a major surprise. So, so pretty nuanced, pretty specific, but I would just encourage anybody who's thinking about, um, you know, electrifying their fleet. It's such a, it's a, it's the world of the unknown right now. There's so much to learn. And that was one of the key learnings. That's been like a real, a, a real advantage for us. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I, it's one of those things that you fell into, but great knowledge for other people to have that are going down that, that road. I know California, Justin, that's pretty big for you guys out there as well. So that is, that is a great secret. Um, give yourself credit for that one because people will definitely benefit from that. Yeah. Well, we found it by accident. So yeah, hopefully people will benefit from it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Electric equipment is on the move, right? Every conference we go to, it's just, it's the future. It's what it is. We have an amazing guest coming on actually that podcast aired about a month or so. And it's talking about how to exactly what you said, use less batteries, but have a way to charge them on site that allows you to get through the day without having to invest tens of thousands into batteries. So that, that Ford lightning move I'm sure is another branding tool that separates you guys in the market. I'm sure those trucks are pretty clean with the, with the logos on them. Yeah. 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 They sure do. So yeah. Anybody who wants to talk electric equipment, I'm an open book and, and, and more than happy to help people with it because we've, we've, uh, we've learned by making a lot of mistakes and we're going to continue to make them. So happy to share those with other folks. Trial by air. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. How can people uh, get a hold of you? Um, I'd say email is probably the best way. Our website is I am greenwise.com. Um, and so my email address is austin at imgreenwise.com. I'm uh, I'm on my email most of the time. So happy to respond there. Awesome. We That's will awesome. definitely include that in the the notes for the show that people can contact, contact you that way. We greatly appreciate having you on, Austin. I think there's so much to learn from what you're doing as a business owner, coming from outside the industry, doing cool new things for the, the organic space. And we are grateful and thankful for you joining us today. Yeah. Well, I admire what you guys are doing, trying to share, you know, information with folks and, and um, hopefully, hopefully a little bit of what I said was helpful. So, so thanks for including me and I look forward to, to being a listener going forward.